podcast. Wednesday, July the 5th, and the Blue Jays are coming off an absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous baseball game. I mean, it was absolutely beyond surreal for those of you watching the game. Blue Jays beat the Yankees 7-6 to to take their first series win since June the 11th. And I'd like to preface that I did mention this was the July, July the 5th show, so that's obviously disturbing. As was the fact that Marco Estrada, even after getting off to an unbelievable start, three innings facing the minimum, ran into some trouble in the middle innings, in particular dealing with Aaron Judge. Then again, who doesn't have problems dealing with Aaron Judge? If anything, I was shocked that they even bothered pitching to him at this stage in the game. I think if the Blue Jays adopt a permanent base-on-ball strategy with Aaron Judge where they automatically walk him every at-bat, they will be better off and further ahead this baseball season than having to face the, the phenom, the Zeus right now of hitters in Major League Baseball. So they managed to pull it out after giving the lead and actually at one point being behind before Russell Martin tied the game. Estrada, as I mentioned, tough, tough June. 0-4, 9.11 ERA, not a good time during the summer. In the end, Estrada's line was five hits and six earned runs allowed in not even five innings. Uh, he walked four hitters and struck out five. His ERA is now over five at, at 5.17. Um, don't know what to tell you about Marco other than it's going to be a grueling, grueling process of watching him battle, especially during the hot, sweaty dog days against teams that are now more than familiar with what to expect in terms of his repertoire. Uh, the changeup is still great, but the fastball doesn't have the kind of crisp control and focus that it that he's used in the past, especially during the 2016 campaign. Uh, Bullpen came in and did their best, much maligned Aaron Loop, and the revelation Danny Barnes came through. Barnes in particular was amazing, uh, striking out three and one and two-thirds. And Roberto Asuna, the constant, along with Justin Smoke this year, that one player that Blue Jays fans can look to and say, hey, he's in the game. We've got a chance to see something noteworthy. Uh, it's worth mentioning Michael Pineda did what Michael Pineda does, which is show you glimpses of why he's so incredibly talented, but also a, a bitterly flawed uh, starting pitcher, not being able to deal. I think it's a poise issue with him. Maybe if his hat wasn't so crooked and he could adjust it a little bit, it might uh, help balance the equilibrium in his approach with these Blue Jays hitters because they were all over him, uh, whether it was Smoke, whether it was Pilar, whether it was Morales. If you watch the home runs that they hit tonight, it's obvious that Michael Pineda uh, isn't what he needs to be for the Yankees to be competitive this year. So next I'd like to bring on someone who I've been looking forward to having on the show for quite some time. He is the author of The Baseball Thesaurus, the radio voice of the Lansing Lugnuts and the Central Michigan women's basketball team, and the host of the Around the Nest podcast. It's my pleasure to have Jesse Goldberg-Strasler on the show today. Jesse, thanks for joining me. Arya, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Jesse, I, I, I can't help but ask a question to myself time and time again when I speak with Blue Jays fans across the city and online. And I'm always surprised to see how few of them really understand what's happening with the Lansing Lugnuts. Now, you being the radio voice and involved on the, the PR and marketing side of the organization, what would you tell someone who's learning about the Class A affiliate for the first time 
what makes it unique or special or is there something about the Lansing Lugnuts that the average person doesn't know that would make them say, I should really pay attention to this baseball club? I like us going a little bit under the radar for one pure reason. And that is, if somebody gets too excited about our players, our guys are still two, three, four years away. And so you can have that level of anticipation. You can have that understanding that there is real talent here that is coming down the pipeline. But if you get too excited, number one, you're going to have to wait for them. And number two, Mm. they could get injured and they could also get traded away from the organization. So with that little note of caution and note of patience, what is going on in Lansing, Michigan, I think would surprise people. For anyone who does not come here to travel, we just held a game on the 4th of July, American Independence Day in the U.S., 11,449 fans. My the goodness. fact that our stadium can bring in 11,000 plus and that we regularly have crowds, 6,000, 7,000, 8,000, it is packed. We are directly downtown. We're in Michigan State Capitol. The Capitol building's a couple of blocks away. Michigan State University is six, seven minutes away driving distance. It is a terrific area. It is a gorgeous facility with a huge video board, apartment complex out beyond the center field wall where some of our players live. There is not a ballpark like ours in, a, in the entire minor leagues. If you were a real estate agent, Jesse, I would buy whatever you're selling right now because that just sounds <laughs> absolutely phenomenal. It makes me wonder, should the, should the parent affiliate, the, the company behind it all, should Rogers and the Blue Jays be doing more perhaps to make fans aware of that? Or is it something that is viewed upon as merely an extra element of an organization as it develops itself and anything that it's able to call as a bonus. Is Rogers serious about the way they treat their minor league affiliates compared to previous years? Oh, oh yes. And and I, I can't speak on previous years, but when you consider what the Buffalo Bisons do at Coca-Cola field, where nothing matches their crowds and they far exceed ours, uh, that ballpark was originally built to be expanded to be a major league stadium. And they're not all that far away from Toronto. And then New Hampshire is just right down the way in AA. So you have Mm. the proximity that you want. You have these facilities that you want. Vancouver is outstanding. There is no better place at that level than Vancouver. And that atmosphere that the Vancouver Canadians present, you'd be hard-pressed to find another minor league team that its fans love its players as much as the Seas fans love their players. So I think that this organization, I think that the affiliates are strong. It seems as though there's a great deal of community-oriented development now, a focus on understanding what these sports teams, regardless of whether or not they're at the highest level, mean to the local environment, the people who live there, who who watch them grow up, if you will, sometimes arriving at the age of 17 or 18 years old. Now, we know you in particular have the pleasure uh, on most days of watching certain young players develop and hopefully make it to the major leagues. And, And, of course, everyone here in Toronto is very optimistic about certain players like, for example, Bo Bichette and Vlad Guerrero Jr. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that. I'm wondering, though, if I can phrase my question in a much more effective or unique manner. Rather than simply asking you what you think about them, what do you think the average fan should understand that maybe they're not aware of when it comes to those two mercurial elite prospects, or at least the way they're being marketed here in Toronto? It seems to me that all you want as a fan is for your organization to succeed. And that is at the major league level that you want the Blue Jays to win. If they're playing today, you want them to win and you want them to continue winning all the way until the World Series title at the very end of the year. What do you want from them in the minors? 
You want them to have the best minor league prospects. And that is my argument, that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is the best offensive prospect in the minor leagues, and that Bo Bichette right now is the best pure hitter when you look at his accomplishments in the minor leagues. That there are scouts who will say that Guerrero is a better prospect. He's a year younger. He hits the ball so hard, and he's a hitting prodigy. He's just so smart. And there's Bo, who is utterly pure, and who right now, whether he's batting 388, whether he's batting 392, whether he gets three more hits and it bumps him right back up to 400, there's nobody even close to them. So the fact that a Blue Jays fan can look down and see these two players, premier prospects, and know that they are Blue Jays organizational farmhands, that is something to be proud of. This kind of excitement or this kind of description befitting these prospects, I haven't heard this since the days of, say, Carlos Delgado and Sean Green and Shannon Stewart and Vernon Wells when the organization kind of followed these players along and let us know that they one day will become mainstays in the lineup. It seems to me like from what you're describing, this is really highly unusual for the Blue Jays to have on their hands these two particular kinds of players who you're saying at this stage in the game, all things being equal, would not surprise you if they end up on the Blue Jays as regular day, everyday players very soon. When we say very soon, I still think it's a couple of years down the road. But yes, okay. uh, the difference between them and, let's say, a Noah Syndergaard or an Aaron Sanchez. Syndergaard and Sanchez excelled with the lug nuts, but you never said these are two of the premier pitching prospects in baseball. You can say this about Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You can say, judging based on the landscape of baseball prospects, we are looking at two of the best in the country, two of the best in any of the ma uh, major league teams' organizations, they are in Lansing. The fact that those two are going to be the youngest players taking part in the Futures game, that lets you know the respect that everybody has for them. How does a Mark Shapiro or Ross Atkins go about their business? Is it any different knowing that they have this kind of talent on the horizon in terms of how it affects their team today? Because I'm sure you're more than aware of, of what a scuffle, what a challenge it's been for this team to find consistency. And there's a great fear and trepidation now that they're going to start, quote, rebuilding or tearing it apart. Does those players, does having those players in the system effectively influence the, both the time frame and inclination of what front office is planning on doing? It can't. Let's say you're a business and you know that you uh, are judged based upon the money, the profit that you're making. Let's say that you're a college and you're judged based upon the grades and the success rate that you're turning out. And neither one of those avenues, you're looking down the road and you're saying three, four years from now, there's going to be the leader. There are going to be the guys who will take us forward. But you can't be judged on them yet. And so right now you have to win now. And right now you have to take a good, hard look at your team and say, what is our best current solutions? What are the best current ways that we can either succeed this year or put ourselves in position to succeed next year? And I don't think that either Bo or Vlad is going to be an ingredient in the Blue Jays' success this year or next year. So it's just something good to have down the road. But if you're both of them, you can have them in your back pocket and smile about their success. But you can't have them in your front pocket. You can't have them at the top of your priorities list. I think that's very prudent advice. I like the way you've, you've phrased it because in the final analysis, this organization should first and foremost be dedicated to its fans in producing what, whatever 160, $170 million payroll this year offers. What's your perspective? I'd like to get the official Goldberg-Strasler perspective on 
the 2017 big club. How, what's your take on how this team has effectively found a way to create one of the most frustrating experiences I've had following a baseball club now for almost 40 years? What gives with this team is my question for you. It's frustrating for you. I think it is also frustrating for the front office, and I think it's frustrating for the coaching staff and for the players because they believe that they should be winning. These are not spring chickens. These are not guys who, you know what, they'll win next year, or this is good for them to get experience and develop. This is a team built to win now. And so whether it's the injuries, whether it's struggles, whether it's weird bounces of the baseball, it has been enigmatic. And I think that a fan might look at them and say, they're not feeling the same sort of frustration that I am, but I don't think anybody is happy with how things have transpired. There's just this belief that maybe tomorrow might hold a solution. And at the same time, the front office is working furiously to see what can we do to improve the team? Where should we go from here? Uh, I think that this season and the twists and turns that it's taken, it's not going to be a straightaway from here on out. There are going to be some twists ahead. And I'm very interested to see what they have uh, in store for the Blue Jays fan base and for the Blue Jays. Now, I've been on multiple radio stations, podcasts, being asked my opinion about what the future of this team holds and why there are challenges today. And of course, you and I, uh, with our shared passion of the game, can look back to the Anthopolis regime and appreciate that this team is effectively still very much the Anthopolis blueprint that's been adjusted and tweaked a little bit by the front office that's now in control. At what point in your eyes, Jesse, does this team go from being a team that has elements of Alex Anthopoulos to being one that is definitively Mark Shapiro's baseball team? That is difficult because was there a time when we said, well, this is no longer J.P. Ricciardi's team? Mm-hmm. I think it's all about key players, right? Where we say, oh, this player was brought in by this administration. That player wasn't. I think that's very difficult And I think if you're going to do that, it is very good of you to give credit to the prior administration or to give the opposite of credit to the prior administration. But this is currently Shapiro's team. Their wins and losses reflect on this administration. And it's very good to have the players brought in by those before you, whether via draft, whether via trade. That's good. You also were in charge of evaluating them and saying, should we keep them? Uh, I, I think you can absolutely give Alex Anthopoulos the credit that he deserves but this belongs to Mark Shapiro right now. Uh, I, I really do think when you are in charge, whether you hired that employee or you didn't, they remain your employee. That's right. That's right. And I'm sure that there was no shortage of um, wincing and maybe some teeth gnashing when you witnessed his ultimate moves and trades that were done to help build the team that competed in in 15 and 16 what was it like as someone who is a true aficionado on minor league talent and has seen the ebb and flow of organizational movement from different players what was it like for you to witness all those minor league players leaving the organization like a Syndergaard a Daniel Norris a Jeff Hoffman um, a Travis Darno for resources that some now are simply no longer here and whatever remnants could soon be gone in a year or two Ari, quite frankly, there was no wincing. There was no teeth gnashing. The point is to win, and the point is to win at the major league level. You put your team in a position to win at the major league level. And so these Lansing lug nuts here in front of me, if one of them suddenly gets traded off to San Diego, I want that player to succeed. I want, for example, Daniel Norris and or Matt Boyd to find a, a nice spot in the Tigers' starting rotation and contribute. Good, I know those guys. I'm wishing them well. 
but it's for the Blue Jays to succeed. These players are assets, and whether they are being developed to help out the Blue Jays at the major league level, or whether they are being developed to be traded elsewhere, and that way the Blue Jays can add pieces that will help them win at the major league level, I think that's all wonderful. It's best for the players because that means that another major league team wanted them. Another major league team said, we value who Jeff Hoffman is. We would like to add him to our organization. We think Franklin Barreto is worth trading for. I think that's wonderful. So that's good for Barreto. That's good for Jeff Hoffman. And also, if you're the Blue Jays and you can get a valuable piece back, you make that trade. So I'm excited for everybody involved. I love the sentiment, although I have to concede that I've been wincing when it comes to Franklin Barreto, and not just because of what he's done in the past week, but I remember when that trade for Donaldson was made, thinking that fantastic move for the for the team, but there's no question that we would one day see the talent that is Franklin Barreto. What are your what are some of your memories or your thoughts on that trade and and that player? Well, we never saw Barreto. There was this legacy of shortstops the Blue Jays were pushing through the system. It was Dawell Lugo, it was Franklin Barreto, it was Richard Urania, and then a little bit lower, it was Yeltsin Gudinho. And we understood shortstop after shortstop after shortstop. These guys, all of them were traveling up through the food chain. And Franklin Barreto was next in line. Uh, Richard Urania was the level beneath him, and that we had just seen Dawell Lugo, and so now it was time for Lugo to move up to Dunedin. And Lugo has since been traded to the Diamondbacks, where he's Arizona's number two prospect. Uh, and here we go. It's Franklin Barreto time. And then they made the deal. But I don't believe in buyer's remorse. I don't believe in buyer's remorse with Noah Syndergaard, for example. I, I think that if you can trade away a single-A player, and Syndergaard was traded away after he pitched with Lansing, so you knew he was still three levels away. And Franklin Barreto was traded away after he played in Vancouver, so he was four levels away from the major leagues. I think you make that deal for a major leaguer more often than not because whatever that player might uh, amount to, whatever occurs, that's terrific. But I think when in doubt, you get that proven commodity. Speaking with Jesse Goldberg, Strasler, Jesse, tell me a little bit about the baseball thesaurus, which is something that you've written. Um, Tell me about what that is exactly and why my listeners should search it out. It is a book about the language of baseball. The second edition has sold out of its print run, so I still have a few, but I just turned in the third edition to the publisher, and who knows how many editions are going to come up after this. It began as a series of lists. How many different ways and how many different words can we use to describe baseball? Uh, I first started working on it back in 2005, and then it was first published in 2012. So for everyone who said, hey, how long does it take to write a book? I can say, seven years. Good luck. But it's about the language of the game. It's the language of the national pastime. It's all of those different words that we have for home runs. It is an exploration into why southpaw and what do we use to determine what we call a pitcher's mound. So speaking with groundskeepers and and speaking with pitching coaches, uh, different names for the curveball. It is fun whether to go back into the 19th century and find those terms that are used for home runs or base hits or great plays, web gems as it were, or to ask the players nowadays, hey, what, do you, what would you call this? What is a fun slang term for this phrase? Mm-hmm. For example, uh, just sitting down with the guys and saying, hey, what's a, what's a great term for, I don't know, a home run? And mm-hmm. 
whatever answers come up with and things I've never heard of before. Back six, seven years ago, I heard Apo Taco for the first time for an opposite field home run. A player said, Taco, we always call it a taco. It's an Apo Taco. And now you'll hear that much more commonly. I love, I love baseball jargon. I love the language of the game. It's always evolving, it seems, and, and is so organic. What happens when you encounter changes to the nomenclature, if you will? For example, the term walk-off home run. For some reason, I don't remember when I was younger ever hearing the term in the mainstream media, he hit a walk-off home run. Does that strike you as maybe an example of something that kind of crept into the lexicon as, as the language evolves? I don't think it creeps in. I think it jumps in. Dennis Eckersley is the player who is, uh, he's the guy that they say he coined the term because the pitcher walks off the mound after he allows Mm. the home run. And I love the term walk off because all I have to do is say to you, they walked off last night and you know what I mean. You say, oh, they had a game winning base hit. They walked off in the 10th. Oh, that makes sense. And that to my mind is what gets at the very heart of good communication. If I'm able to say something and you're able to understand me, it does not matter what I say. It just matters that you understand. So yes, terms pop up all the time. I think about when I was growing up, what terms we would use as kids to describe something being good or something being great. I grew up right near Washington, D.C. in Maryland, and I remember you would say cool, you would say awesome. Suddenly it was tight. Suddenly it was, this is crucial. At one point we were describing things as Fat, P-H-A-T, slang changes, Uh, language changes because language is a living thing. It is used all the time. The players are perpetually talking baseball. So bring on the new terms. And I have no doubt that given the cultural evolution of the game, the fact that it's become more accessible internationally, the fact that countries and groups of people are coming together in parts of the world that maybe never entertained baseball as a pastime, I suppose that's where the language is important and, as you mentioned, crucial. Well, have you ever heard of the term or the question, que lo que? So it comes out of the Dominican Republic, and it's just an easy way of saying, basically, what's up, how are you? It's a greeting. You would say, que lo que? And then the proper answer is tranquilo, as in tranquil, as in I'm chilling right now. So that is something I picked up, and I didn't even know this was a Dominican slang term in terms of a wonderful greeting. I had no idea what culture it came from. I just understood the players were asking each other, hey, que lo que, tranquilo. And so now I just learned, here's where it comes from, here's where it originates. But that is something that is used by players, regardless of whether they have command of Spanish or not. You can simply turn to somebody else, and it's an easy way to put somebody at ease. Yes, people, no matter what countries you come from, the Lansing Lugnuts right now have players from Canada, from the United States, from Panama, from, uh, let's see, uh, Honduras, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Dominican Republic, from all over. And this is so great to see all of these guys getting along and uh, being great teammates because it's not about the language or their culture. It's the quality of their character. And they are such good character guys that they naturally gravitate to one another. We're learning a lot from you, and and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Let me ask you before I let you go, Jesse, about your podcast. Tell me about Around the Nest and some projects you're working on that fans of our show should be looking out for when it comes to you. Winter Meetings 2011. There was a broadcaster named Craig Durham, who is the voice of the Dunedin Blue Jays. And he came up with the idea that during the year, he and I would 
I don't know, it wasn't even called a podcast at the time. We would get together on the phone and record what was going on with the DJs and what was going on with the lug nuts. And we called it Blue Jays A Talk. And in 2012, <laughs> that's when we had Noah Syndergaard, Aaron Sanchez, Justin Nicolino, Anthony DiScofani, Kevin Pillar, dot, 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 Carlos Perez. And from that Blue Jays A Talk, suddenly he said to me one day, what if we call up the AAA guy? And the Blue Jays at the time were in Las Vegas. What if we ask him what's going on with him? What if we call up the double-A guy and ask him what's going on with him? And it became this show that the two of us each went brainstorming back to our rooms, basically, back to our stadiums. And we contacted Mm -hmm. each other again, and I said, Jay talking. And he came back with, around the nest. And I decided his was better. And so it's called around the nest, and then we Jay talk around the Blue Jays organization, uh, Craig has since left the organization. He's broadcasting elsewhere now, and I've kept it up since 2012. And it's every Friday uh, at 4 o'clock right now. I go through and I host, and Ben Wagner from AAA Buffalo says, here's what's going on with the Bisons. And Tyler Murray or Bob Lipman or Tyler Zickel with AA New Hampshire says, here's what's going on with the Fisher Cats. Uh, from A Advanced Needham, it's Jim Terabokia. From Short Season A Vancouver, it's the great Rob Fay. There's nobody like Rob Fay. Uh, from Bluefield, we're going to get the Bluefield broadcaster in very shortly for the first time. Maybe we get Chris King, the scout, in to talk about the Gulf Coast League. I think that we've carved out a niche. I don't think that there are a lot of people who are saying, here are eyewitness accounts of funny stories that I've seen, weird things that have happened. Nixon A., a member of the Lugnuts, who has been hit by 20 pitches in 36 games, which is just nuts. And he's been hit each of the last two days since coming off the DL. He was standing up there at the plate one day, and a fastball came in on him. Never took the bat off his shoulder. It smacked into the knob of the bat, and it rolled left, and it was an RBI single. It scored the runner from third off the knob without him swinging. These are stories that I want to share with people that you just see weirdness in the minor leagues all the time. So that's our show. It's Around the Nest on Twitter, at Around Nest. And if it's not getting updated, it's on iTunes and SoundCloud. And then it's my fault because I got too busy with the lug nuts. Well, Jesse, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on my show today, giving us the perspective and insights that you do. You're a very professional and potent voice, and I certainly hope to have you on the show again very soon. He is Jesse goldberg Strasler, radio voice of the Lansing Lugnuts, and you should check him out on Around the Nest Podcast. Thanks again, Jesse. Hey, Ari, thank you.